Dougie Lampkin is preparing to take on his biggest task yet. Wheeling for 37 miles around the Isle of Man on its infamous TT course. The rule was, although I didn't know at the time, the moment my front wheel touched, I would be stopped. No second chance. Stopped. Finished. Over. I rode upon at the start line and, yeah, there was a big gulp. That is for sure. He knew how hard this was going to be. One wrong move and it all goes to waste. When I looked up, I thought, oh, my God, what have we done? Helicopter hovering above. Jake, my manager, was on the film vehicle in front and, like he says now, I must admit, he said, when I looked at you there, I just thought, what the hell have we done here? I'm Rob Pope, and from Red Bull, this is How To Be Superhuman. Dougie Lampkin is a legend of his sport, trial biking. A sport where it's not speed that's the aim, but balance and control. In trials, you have to negotiate an obstacle course that's designed to throw you off your bike. A course so difficult, it'd be hard enough to get through it on foot let alone two wheels. Riders who go on to succeed have to use all of their strength, guile and bravery to get by. Dougie is one of those riders. With his father Martin at his side, Dougie dominated. 12 world titles over a career spanning 20 years. An unprecedented level of success. But what happened when the podiums dried up? when Dougie was no longer the favourite, when he still craved the ultimate challenge. The wheelie. It's a trick that's been performed by school kids since the beginning of time. The art of heaving upwards on the handlebars of your bike and riding along on your back wheel. I remember the kids that could go the furthest were always the coolest. And before you'd ask, I wasn't one of them. To the uninitiated... It might seem trivial, but the course Dougie was set to wheelie was the ultimate feat of endurance. The Isle of Man TT. 37 miles across rugged landscapes, herping corners and windswept mountain passes. A course that even the wheelie king himself, Dave Taylor, failed to complete back in the 70s. Could it be done? Was Dougie the man to do it? Was there more pressure on him because he grew up in a family whose name was synonymous with success in the world of British trial biking? My father was, uh, Martin was world trial champion in 1975. I was born in 76 and when... Uh, my mother and father announced that uh, mum was pregnant. The company that he rode for, Bull Taco, gave my mother a motorcycle that was ready for me. So, yeah, on this occasion, the, the <laughs> motorcycle arrived before their son. So you could say I was destined to be on a motorbike. But, yeah, in the, in the early years, I, did, I rode a little bit, but it was very much for fun. I played a lot of golf as well. And then when I was about 10 or 11, yeah, I really decided that it was a motorbike that I wanted to do and, and pushed on hard for that. And, yeah, the rest's uh, history, as you say. 
because obviously you, you had the dream of following in your in your dad and your uncle's footsteps. Like fathers are such a huge influence on you when when you're young. You know, did your dad want you to go down that route? Um, he never pushed me at all, which is uh, quite an interesting side, actually, because, you know, in a lot of sports, we can see it where, you know, the parents or the fathers are, are very pushy to their children. And I think a lot of the time it sort of pushes them out of it. I'm very careful with our two boys, myself and my wife, Nicola. I've got two boys, Alfie and Fraser, and, and they ride, you know, for fun. Uh, they enjoy it, but, you know, they do sort of carry that name as well, whereas people expect a lot more than, than what's really necessary. You know, they've got a lot going on and a lot of sports, and they're great riders. Um, they're not fantastic riders, but they enjoy what they're doing. And, you know, I'll always support that all the way. But um, yeah, they'll never be never be forced on the on the bikes, which happens with quite a lot of sports and and kids with the parents. Well, you say they're not fantastic riders, but to begin with, like neither were you. How how did you get into the competitive side of things? Yeah, I think um, in my early years, I didn't realise sort of the effort that you needed to do. You know, I was a typical kid. Um, I was pretty average at school. I wasn't sort of overly interested in it, and I just sort of you know, moped around a little bit. And, and to be honest, then I sort of started taking a bit more interest in the trials and lo- looking what effort would need to go into it. And yeah, it took a couple of years, I would say, to, to really decide that I wanted to go for it. It's similar in pretty much all the sports that you only get out of it what you put in. Yeah, literally when, when SAD sort of got going, then I really got rolling and I just wanted to make sure I was doing more training than anybody else, working harder than anybody else and sort of make it that if, if I did my job on the day at any of the World Championship rounds or the British rounds, that if I was the best I could be, then nobody could beat me. And uh, that took a, a hell of a lot of effort and a lot of a lot of hours training, a lot of sacrifices, not really from my side, although you know I missed all the nightclub era and all that, but... Uh, you know, my parents had a lot to do, taking me to a lot of events and taking me abroad. I lived abroad for quite a bit in the training. So a massive amount of effort, but um, that's what you need to get the reward. So for those who don't really know much about trials by kids, sort of, you know, this isn't the need for speed. You know, sort of, uh, I was lucky enough to actually see you on TV when I was 13 and you were probably only a year or two older in a fantastic programme, Kickstart. So I know, but tell everybody about what trials involves. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, that's the way I normally describe trials, really. But, uh, yeah, my sport is is motorcycle sport, nothing about speed. We ride over obstacles, which we call sections. Um, they'll normally be 15 sections um, and two laps of that. And you get penalised for putting your feet down or falling off. Or if you ride through the obstacle without putting your feet down, that's zero. And the crash is five, that's the maximum. And the person with the least amount of points at the end of the day is the winner. You were a double act still with your dad. You know, he was ever present, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, in our sport trials, you have what we call a minder. And that's somebody who basically, as you're going up the obstacles, if it starts going wrong at the top of a big step or a big climb, you know, they grab the bike, not the rider. They always sort the bike <laughs> out and and leave the, the rider to fend for himself. So I travel to every event, um, every practice session, or for, what, crikey, I couldn't even remember how long, you know, t- over 25 years. Yeah, we were, we were a, you know, a great partnership. We had a few uh, barnies here and there during the competitions where I'd said a few things that I definitely shouldn't have done, but 
fortunately at the end of the uh, the event we went back to father and son which was you know how it should be we, we were there to do a job we both wanted it as much as each other and we put a lot of effort in and like I said we got the rewards but we we're still father and son when the we let the handlebars go like, so you win 12 world championships in a competitive career that's over like 20 years or so now you get to the end of that competitive career as probably the, one of the world's first extreme athletes, in all honesty. But like, what, where did you go from there? Like, what, you know, how did you think about you were going to continue on the bike or were you happy to quit? It's a very difficult um, pill to swallow, really. Obviously, sort of from a very young age, I only wanted to be world champion. And then I became world champion. Then I got greedy and I wanted to do it again and again and again, obviously. And like you said, I managed to win you know, 12 world titles, you know, that was all great, but there's only one place to go when you're number one, and that's, you know, sliding down the slippery slope. And, you know, that that time inevitably comes if you have won everything and you're on the top step of the podium and the interviews, pre-race interviews are asking you, you know, who's going to come second. You sort of get stuck in that little trap and and uh, and that's where you are. And then all of a sudden you feel like you're making the numbers up because the victories aren't there. Um, it's reality, unfortunately. It seems like you're getting older, which you are doing, but they're getting younger. Yeah, well, you, you're taking bikes to places that they're not meant to go to, like uh, on board super yachts, ice caves. Um, you've, you've jumped over some incredible obstacles, but quite often... One of the th- most simple things to do are often the best. And I've got a little bit of a confession to make here. I can't do a wheelie. I tried <laughs> all my life. I fell off the back once and landed right on my bum, and then that was it for me. I just decided it wasn't for me. But, like, motorbike riders all over the world, they'll finish a race, they'll pull a wheelie, but they're not up for very long. So why did you then suddenly think that doing something around maybe one of the more simple tricks, supposedly, would be the thing for you? I just thought what people could relate to really and like you know you just mentioned then when you had a push bike or a motorbike you either wanted to jump it or you wanted to skid it or you wanted to wheel it and I definitely can't jump so uh, that was out of the question so I started talking about a wheelie and it started off quite a bit smaller it escalated so much more I was talking about you know a road race circuit or you know maybe because the Red Bull were doing events in London things it could be quite interesting around the streets in London and then I'd lived in the Isle of Man for nine years and we started talking about the TT course it's nearly 38 miles and somebody was saying that would be amazing and I was going yeah yeah that 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 sounds pretty good but I'm not sure if it's possible but I could tell already that all the people in that room were thinking we're going to the Isle of Man I remember coming on the the home on the train with my manager and I just couldn't quite believe what we'd sort of teed ourselves up for. And then when I got home, my father hit the nail on the head with it when he said, well, how on earth are you going to wheelie around the Isle of Man when you can't wheelie to the end of my driveway? And to be honest, his driveway is only about 100 yards and he was probably right. You know, the challenge was already set. I'd throw my cap in the ring and, and, and yeah, we were, we were uh, preparing to wheelie the Isle of Man TT. The Isle of Man TT is one of the most dangerous racing courses in the world. Superbike riders reach speeds of nearly 200 miles an hour along public roads. Over 250 people have died trying to complete the course. However, only one man had ever attempted it on one wheel. There was a chap back in the 70s called Dave Taylor who tried three times to wheelie the TT course um, and unfortunately didn't, didn't make it. 
And so Dougie set himself the challenge to be the first person to wheelie 37 miles around the Isle of Man. Problem was, nothing was going right. His training schedule was gruelling, his bike wasn't doing what he wanted it to do. To be honest, it just wasn't wasn't really working. Um, we got the go-ahead sort of beginning of February uh, and then my father was really ill with cancer and unfortunately passed away. So I tried to uh, sort of forget about bikes for a bit and sort of went away from it for a little bit. He'd lost the man who for so long had been his rock, his main source of strength. I think it was the beginning of July. The furthest I'd wheeled was 1.2 miles, so we were in massive trouble. Dougie was suddenly overcome with the feeling that he may be attempting the impossible. And that's when I phoned up my athlete manager at Red Bull and told him that uh, the project was off together with my manager and everybody went quiet. And I just knew when I come off the phone that that hadn't gone down too well. But I just didn't think I could do it. To wheelie for a significant amount of time takes an unbelievable amount of strength and control. Not only would Dougie need to balance the bike and hold it in position, he'd also be battling against outside elements, in particular the unpredictable out-of-man winds. So what was he going to do? He'd basically quit the project and, and he'd lost his dad. There must have been a bit of a rally round between my friends, my management and Red Bull and all of a sudden it was like roll your sleeves up time and everybody had everything cancelled and yeah, we sort of got our head down, got the gyro front wheel on and um, I was wheeling uh, obviously on a private road near home but I wheeled about four miles and it felt pretty good and I just thought to myself, do you know what, this might actually happen and then we went to a... A circuit up by Scotch Corner up by Richmond called Croft. And although it's very, very flat because it's an airfield, I did about 12 laps of it. And on the way home, driving home from there with Blackie, I called my manager, Jake, and just said, you know what, I think we can do this. And uh, I think that was a sigh of relief to everybody because it was a massive undertaking. Yeah, the infrastructure and the manpower that went into it just for one bloke to set off wheeling was pretty incredible. You, you talked about the time where um, things, you know, literally the wheels started to come off and you also mentioned about the very sad passing of your dad. Now, unfortunately, so I, I lost my mum at a tricky time as well and um, she said one thing to me that always got me through tough times, which is make sure you do one thing in your life that makes a difference. Now, if your dad was around when you were, you know, struggling, what do you think he'd have said to you to say, come on, Dougie? Yeah, it's it's an interesting an interesting point actually because you know after this we did a um, a documentary uh, with Red Bull and and people that I filmed with before and these people who we filmed with they they knew my father from all the events that we've done previously you know in all the history and you know it was pretty unanimous that that all of them said that you know if he was still here there would have been no wobble you know there wouldn't have been a a chance of uh, backing out of it. It would have uh, it would have been all guns blazing, and that's why they didn't let me stop, really, because you know we never give up. But so much training, a huge crew, huge interest. What was it like the couple of days building up to the race? Talk us through the events. 
the build-up to it should have been pretty plain sailing. We were just going to do a little bit of recceing. There's a big uh, drive called Marine Drive in the Isle of Man, which is closed off. And we were allowed to wheelie on there a little bit. So, you know, it's always windy there. So it was good to sort of get there and try and get settled in. But the problem is it was so windy, there was a, a big panic for the for the Saturday so when we decided first thing on the Saturday morning, I think up on the on the mountain, if I remember rightly, the, the wind gauge was saying 55 miles an hour. I mean, there was absolutely no chance. And although we knew it was still going to be quite windy on the Sunday, that was our last opportunity. So we decided to delay for 24 hours, which was, uh, I was, I was absolutely wounded. I'd sort of set myself up and prepared myself much how I did for the world championship. Yeah, I just went back to the hotel and, and sort of didn't do a right lot all afternoon, really. It was sort of felt like you were twiddling your thumbs playing the waiting game. It was difficult to reset. And, and the same for all the team, really. You know, we'd, like I said, we'd built up to that stage. And, yeah, 24-hour delay was a nightmare. Because you were, you built up this for so long, but you were entering uh, an adventure where one mistake, you can't, you can't change this. If, if your wheel goes down, that's it, isn't it? Is there, is there any way to get it back? You know, so what, what had you thought about if that wheel went down. That that was why I was laid awake for most nights for about six months um, leading up to it because obviously that's the the biggest problem. I knew I knew what had gone into this, you know. We had a helicopter filming, we had a helicopter for the signal. I could see the amount of trucks in the in the grandstand car park and they were all there for one person and it was for me. It wasn't a team, it wasn't a big gang of us, it was it was all down to me. The rule was, although I didn't know at the time, the moment my front wheel touched, I would be stopped. Red Bull didn't want it to be, well, he just touched once or he just touched twice. It was either, yes, he did it, or no, he didn't. My outriders knew when they were instructed to actually knock me off the bike if I tried to continue wheeling. Sounds pretty serious. Although this was a serious undertaking and Dougie was already feeling the pressure. Yeah, I remember the, the producer saying, I'm going to need you up on the start line for 10 minutes before the start. And I was like, you're absolutely joking. I'm coming up there last minute because it's a big motorcycling island. Like I said, I'd lived there for, for, for nine or 10 years. Everybody was out at the grandstand. There was a lot of people about, and I was trying to keep out of the way. But he couldn't keep out of the way forever. And now it was time. Yeah, I rode up with my cousin James, who's been with me pretty much all my career. I won all my world championship with James being a minder as well as my father. Exchanged a few words with me of, uh, yeah, you're going to have to make this happen. And I rode up on at the start line and, uh, yeah, there was a big gulp, that is for sure. Would Dougie be able to keep the front wheel off the road? Would the wind be too strong? Were all the months of preparation going to be worth it? When I looked up, I thought, oh, my God, what have we done? Helicopter hovering above... Jake, my manager, was on the film vehicle in front and like he says now, I must admit, he said, when I looked at you there, I just thought, what the hell have we done here? It's really strange because, you know, once you got the bike up, you sort of get yourself comfortable and I was a bit wavy going towards the line. I started about probably 10 or 15 metres in front of the line and got it up into the gear I can just remember it now. I couldn't breathe at all. I just, I was just gasping for air. And you start off by going down Bray Hill, which is very steep. 
which was the worst part for me was the the downhills it was it was very difficult to try and control the bike so i'm dragging on the brakes and the clutch immediately looking good going down the hill but now was the start for some real obstacles and soon you were approaching a 180 degree turn so approaching into Ramsey, you've got oh, Parliament Square and a few quite tight corners. And there was, I remember a lot of people about, and I'd not really noticed how many people were around. I was sort of concentrating, but mind was wandering a little bit. And we approached uh, Ramsey Hairpin, which is quite a, a tight uphill left-hander. I managed to get that really nice. And then you just start coming out of the trees and there's waterworks and waterworks too. And it just becomes a bit more exposed there. And as I looked up, I could see Jake in front on the camera vehicle in front and also one of the live presenters, Lisa. And, yeah, they they were having quite a a big talk and I could just see there were a lot going on. They were on the radios uh, and I just knew then that this is where it was stepping up a level. It was time for Dougie to really switch on. The mountain road was approaching. And then, lo and behold, the you know the first corner turning up onto the mountain, the gooseneck, a sharp uphill, right-hand hairpin. That's the point where I almost lost it twice. He was still riding, balancing on one wheel, but out of nowhere. So, guys, the wind is massively picking up here. This is a huge test for Dougie. He's uh, he's spoken to Jake, his manager, he's been speaking to the whole time. We've got a van here and us trying to shield him from this wind because it's so strong. And we've just seen him go backwards and forwards across both lanes. I got a a big gust tailwind and, yeah, it had gone really. Oh, big wobble there. The left foot came off, he had to really correct. Dougie is really feeling the toll at the moment. I sort of dropped the clutch completely and gunned it to try and rescue it and just heaved back. Somehow, he managed to keep the front wheel away from the tarmac. And that was, let's not say a wake-up call, but it was something along those lines. It was, this is where it really went to another level of, of difficulty. But that was only the beginning. Dougie was now wheeling over the 13-mile section of the Snaefell Mountain Road, which is the most exposed part of the course. I did realise that it does get quite a bit windier. I'd spoken with friends about one corner called The Hut, and then obviously there's Windy Corner, and it's named that for one reason only, as you can imagine. But I didn't realise at the time until I was being screamed at by Jake off the... Uh, off the vehicle in front, I'd pulled up literally within a metre and a metre and a half of the um, tracking vehicle. I was trying to shout to Jake to get the get my van alongside, and I think he must have been thinking at that time, what on earth, you know, you're going to be wheeling in like, let's say, a box of three square metres then, that's that's ridiculous. But I knew that it, that's what needed to happen. One of my technicians from the factory I've worked with for a lot of years, he's Spanish, and he's never driven right-hand drive. He's only ever driven left, and I'd not really thought about that before it. And Blackie was in the passenger seat giving him signals, and, and he was driving, and they pulled right alongside um, the rear of the, the tracking vehicle, so it sort of sheltered me a little bit. It just did give me a little bit of peace of mind that I'd created myself a bit of a windbreak there, but unfortunately given myself very little room for error in that space. You know, if we had a caught a big gust, I'd have probably hit the side of the van and gone down and 
I probably wouldn't have been bothered about running, getting run over because the deal was off. And so what happened after the mountain? Going over the mountain was really touch and go the whole way and I think that's what really exhausted me because I was so tight on the bike and probably not breathing properly and as I started dropping off the mountain after all those heroics for like 10 or 12 miles it is across there that's when my back and my legs were starting to go and I was weaving about quite a bit and then yeah started to get I don't know maybe a little bit panicky really because you know one of the one of the camera bikes pulled alongside to get some um, photos and some more footage and uh, yeah my language that to him can't be repeated so uh, I think he was uh, I think everybody knew then that it was like get out of his way he's coming uh, and then you come up out of uh, their pass a corner called Hillbury and I actually used to live around the corner from there so I knew where I was going there I knew how close we were but I'd thought a lot in the uh, in the run-up about the last two corners in Governor's Bridge you know it's the tightest two corners on the course and they just happened to be the last two corners this is the last part of it. This is the last part of his challenge. Downhill, right-hand bend. Now he's got a left-hand bend into this old section of the course. So I had to drop into there and change gear twice, which I'd sort of had these nightmares of it missing a gear or hitting a neutral or something like that. But Unfaltering. Look, solid as a rock through there. Come on, Dougie. Come on, Dougie. You're almost at the end now. 150 beats per minute. So the stress and the physical exertion taking their toll on him. To be honest, it went round really, really nice. I think, you know, there might have been a little bit of a helping hand round there. That should have been the last hurdle out of the way, but you know this man won't let success creep into his mind until he crosses that line. He will not let his guard down. I pulled out of the last corner and there in the distance was the grandstand. But I wasn't chancing going up the gears. My legs were not shaking, but I was, uh, yeah, let's say, good job it wasn't another four or five miles. He was aching, stretching every sinew to get to the finish line, his limbs screaming at him to stop. But Dougie wasn't done yet. The body was definitely on the limit. Less than 100 metres. Don't drop it now, Dougie, whatever you do. Come on, Dougs, let's get this thing over the line. I pulled out of that, that last right-hander onto the, uh, onto, let's say, the main dragon, and it must be, I don't know, a quarter of a mile, maybe something like that. My legs were hurting far too much, so I never changed gear, but I could just see that start line. And once I decided not to change gear, I'd noticed a few people and massive cheers from the people at the side. And while not allowing myself to think, you've got this, I definitely got that little bit of a chance to relax for the first time in the, in the whole thing. I just kept cruising along. And then when I probably got to about the last 100 metres, I let myself believe that I'd actually done it. Yes! It's unbelievable! The Ironman TT course has been done on one wheel. And look what it means to him. Yes, Dougie! Dougie Lumpkin is not a man who gives his emotions away easily. He is... He's done it. A Yorkshire man through and through. And you can see just how exhausted he is. The pain in his back and his legs and his arms taking its toll.
in that point you can see the television crew sort of disappear off in the distance the television camera in front because they were expecting me to speed back up to like the 19 20 miles an hour but I didn't have it in me. So, yeah, it's the slowest uh, crossing of the finish line in TT for sure. You weren't milking it, were you, Dougie? Uh, I definitely wasn't, no. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, the relief when I crossed the line, I've never done much fist pumping in my life, but on this occasion there was a hell of a lot of fist pumping. You could uh, tell you didn't look a practised fist pumper. You are enthusiastic, no, but I'm not sure no, about the technique. It looks very uncomfortable looking at it now, but the relief is still the same. You know, I got off that bike... Uh, we were still live, so I needed to get round to the um, to the studio, which they'd built in the grandstand in these trucks, and uh, I couldn't get myself there. Yeah, I needed carrying, so I was a broken man. I remember I'd, I'd lay down afterwards, and yeah, my legs just still felt like they were pulsating. I could just couldn't sit still. Yeah, body just took a took a few hours to just quieten down, and then basically fell asleep for a week afterwards. And most people would agree, he richly deserved that sleep. So, while he's not riding over everything that stands in his path, Dougie's now encouraging the next generation of lambkins to follow in his wheel tracks. So thanks so much to Dougie for being my guest on How To Be Superhuman, brought to you by Red Bull. To discover more about Dougie's superhuman efforts on the Isle of Man, head to redbull.com for photos, stories and even a full-length documentary which is appropriately titled Wheelie Man. On next week's episode, I'll be chatting to Tim Don. Don by name, Don by nature. After setting the world record in Ironman, he battled back from a broken neck to compete once again at the highest level. It is like having four titanium screws screwed into your skull open wound literally from my belly button up I could not move and please remember to subscribe and leave a review if you're enjoying the podcast and also get in touch with us on social media using the hashtag Red Bull how to be superhuman to share tales of your own superhuman feats or you can even suggest other people we should talk to with incredible stories we'd love to hear from you How to Be Superhuman is a something else production for Red Bull Media House.